their territory spreads from Washington in the United States up into uh, Vancouver Island in uh, British Columbia. And uh, we're working on building artificial intelligence or automatic speech recognition for these languages. And um, pretty interesting stuff. Like, there's a lot of untouched research. Uh, and so it's unfortunately and fortunately at the same time, greenfield research space, which is great from a scientific perspective, but also terrible because it also means that um, there's just not that much attention uh, to into this area. Well, I, I remember when we first met at the, the gig in Hawaii, like I got all, um, I don't know, just the, the couple of, I just completely nerded out on a couple of brief yarns that we had. Uh, I got I got excited about the idea of um, indigenous language, like esoteric codes, like like how would it be different if we were coding in language? Like, you know, not just coding for language, but actually coding using our language, how much that would change things. I got all excited about that. Um, but what, I mean, in that sort of area of things, but also just in general, what what do you think that indigenous knowledge um, can bring to, bring to the field of AI and, or conversely, you know, what can AI bring to the field of indigenous knowledge? Um, or should we be uh, setting up a nice big firewall? I think there's, there's risk, as with any tool, there's risk and reward with, for indigenous peoples, you know, like I think we have to be very careful that any technology, whatever it is, isn't used as a colonial mechanism for oppression, which is really easy to do. Um, in AI, I think there's issues of um, the data being exploited. So when you build an AI, you need to collect a lot of for using the machine learning and neural nets. And it's deep neural networks, and that's kind of a buzzword. And the problem, though, is that you need to assemble a lot of data. Uh, and so we're getting around that requirement by creating a multilingual data set. But unfortunately, this audio isn't just, you know, uh, asinine trivia. It's, it's not tweets. It's not TikTok videos. It's not, it's people's culture and stories and archival audio from elders who have passed on. And so there's a, a level, it's a different, it's different kind of data. It's not just regular information that you would see on TV. And so there, there's a different requirement for security, for the data sovereignty. So I work in the space of indigenous data sovereignty simply as a matter of course, because we are we do have very sensitive data that we're working with, uh, cultural information, stories, and songs that are critical to the identity of the people and which are easily exploited. And so from the perspective of AI, the biggest risk is data loss. Um, entities like large corporations or universities or unscrupulous researchers going into a community, collecting data to build their AI and not giving the community uh, back. And so, and it's really, it's very prevalent. You would think that indigenous people are, would know that uh, this behavior is happening, they do, but they're often often desperate. Communities are desperate to record their 
uh, songs and stories. Communities are desperate to work with a linguist or computational linguist to be documented in the first place. Many language communities don't have basics, um, like my tribe's language, uh, Cheyenne, my mother's tribe, is very well documented. There's a dictionary, there's uh, quite a few papers on it. Uh, it's scientifically interesting. And we're constantly fending off outsider input versus, say, uh, my wife's community, they, the Abzalica language community. They don't have, they have a lot of books and whatnot, but there's very little research. And it's simply because, for whatever random reason, scientists aren't that interested in it. They even lack a basic dictionary. Um, they, thankfully, they are thriving. Uh, a large population does speak their language. Um, and so what you have is this problem of communities can't say no. Um, and so they get into bad situations with researchers and AI corporations who want to build AI out of, you know, either good intent or, you know, science, get their tenure, for example, or do their PhD. And they're basically losing contact with their audio. And it's been happening across uh, all indigenous, across the globe, this, this kind of phenomena where, um, Years ago, what kind of set me on this trajectory was I was at a language uh, conference in Hawaii, it's a big language conference, um, and a research group being funded by a large corporation based in Redmond, Washington, and they were they had Blackfeet data, and it was a, and these are all you know Westerners. And I, I not one of them was indigenous backfeet. And I asked, do they know you're doing this? <laughs> are you are, are they aware that you're doing this kind of research with their data? And like they were just, and they had no idea what I was asking. Like they just were so uh, flummoxed. I'm saying, like, you have this, they were playing an audio clip, and it was, and I happened to know some songs by the Blackfeet, and it was like a uh, I think I, I, it was some chant that I recognized was sacred or something. And it was by a, this person who was an elder uh, who recently passed away actually within the last couple of years. Um, but this was years ago and he, his voice was in there. And then he, and I said, you know, do, does the community know that you're doing this research? Yeah. And this was research out of University of Washington. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I mean, this is Blackfeet data. Do does the Blackfeet tribe know that you're doing this research on them and showcasing their audio? And they said, we just get our data from Montana. I don't know who these like. Do you know who you, who's talking? You know, and they didn't know any basic bit about the data. To them, it was just some bits and bytes. Um, and they were doing some research on Creighton. Uh, if I remember, my memory is bad. I don't exactly remember, but I believe it was something to do with uh, creating an auditory index using waveform analysis. Um, roughly in that, <laughs> roughly within that uh, field. And they happened to be using Blackfeet as their sample data set so that they could, they're saying they were able to arbitrarily oh. index data based upon the phonetic signature somehow. And they even really weren't studying Blackfeet. They just happened yeah. to have a lot of audio and. And it just yeah. was very frustrating that, that was just they didn't a data see, set to graze on. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they, that's just a very typical perspective. Yeah. And they were being very callous to the tribe. And, and finally, mm-hmm. it got, and then the, this also triggered, there was other, probably half the audience happened to be indigenous of one sort or another. And they started asking questions too. And uh, I think I kind of derailed the presentation by asking yeah. like, hey. <laughs> um, wow. And that kind of set me like, huh, you know, these, this is important and interesting work that could have positive impact upon indigenous communities, but they're conducted it in a way that would, mm. is actually harmful to the community. Yeah. And even if the harm isn't like immediately apparent, you know, it's, I mean, these are sacred languages, you know, and um, I don't know, I, like I sometimes wonder about like with the Navajo codes, you know, in the Second World War, they were, they were frustrating the Germans by just getting, uh, sending all their communications in Navajo. So like it was a real lazy code. It was just, I would just translate in Navajo, they haven't got any Navajo there. In Germany, they don't know what's going on. Um, I don't know, that seems like a pretty innocuous and innocent but what if they were giving orders you know know, like to commit war crimes to you know do unethical things from a Navajo standpoint you know it's kind of like there there is there is that other damage you know that's done to the language there so you know you may think just providing it as a data set for AI to graze on is like that's innocuous it's not doing anything to the language or exploiting it in any way but I don't, I don't know, who knows what's going on there. I don't know, you, how do you feel about that, that point, of, that side of things? Yeah, I, I can't speak too much about the code talker. I mean, I mean, we, it, it actually, interestingly, just a side note, <laughs> sorry, this is, this is gonna be a conversation of a size. It's that the Navajo got famous for it, but there was a ton of tribes, actually. It was, um, and, and the story behind that's quite interesting because the the American encryption was crap. That they, they, they couldn't encrypt anything. The, the the Germans and the Japanese were reading our email quicker than we could ourselves because we just sucked. <laughs> we just were terrible at it. Yeah. And that and so I think some general or something said, why don't we just have we speak Indian, you know? And um, and there were multiple tribes. There was Lakota, Cheyenne, Crow, right. uh, even my my wife's grandfather was part of that. One of my grandfathers was part of that. And, but it and just you're right. Didn't have the alliteration, yeah. didn't, didn't have the assonance, the, I don't know, the sexy sound of Navajo code. <laughs> I think they were the that. largest. Just for branding, I you know. I think, well, I don't know. I, I don't know the exact story why they got <laughs> most famous. I think they were the largest, but they also are one of the largest tribes. In, United States and but you're right you know like I, I won't speak to the co-talkers you know like I I, I, um, I don't have the context yeah. to to really um, comment on that but or the position I don't feel for entirely comfortable but from the perspective of using indigenous knowledge as a weapon is definitely cause of concern for me just to broadly and like I can see it, like obviously, at some degree, communication is communication, you know, abstractly. And, and but 
using indigenous knowledge systems as a weapon, I think is a very unethical and even just creating weapons in general, like it's not. So for indigenous peoples, even Lakota, my uh, my dad's uh, tribe in Blackfeet, they were very militant. Um, the, they were the ones who um, were the ones killing the invaders. You know, they were the ones standing and fighting, and they weren't using weapons of war. You know, like we didn't have um, AR-15s, which is a an AR-15 is an American gun specifically designed to kill other people, and and it, and it has no utility as a hunting. You can hunt for it, but it's terribly inaccurate. And when you're hunting a deer, you need something that shoots 50 to 100 meters. And the AR-15 is, I think, accurate, depending on the model, within 50 meters, which is not very useful. And so it's like not much better than a shotgun. Um, and it shoots a very small caliber. The natal round is very small. and deer have a very thick skin. And so like every, every, you can see the bullet bounce off the skin of uh, a deer and even like glass windows, well, it'll ricochet off glass windows. And so it's specifically, it's a weapon for killing humans. When the Lakota and the Cheyenne were fighting for their land, they were using their hunting rifles. They were using their bows and arrows. They were designed for hunting. Uh, we were excellent shots because you need to kill a pheasant that's fly in flight, moving, you know, at a tangent, you know, like a, a parallel path to you or like crossing your path. And we just happened to be really good at doing that kind of thing. And so we were great soldiers, but they weren't skills meant to kill people. It was skill set meant to um, feed and help your family. And so that's a different kind of mindset. And warfare, even with the Lakota, was very limited. Like it was, go steal the crow. My wife's crow, by the way. <laughs> We're enemy tribes. And so, you know, victory right. for the Lakota was to humiliate them, not kill them. You know, like death was relatively rare. And warfare was, um, like you go over and you give a stick that's about a meter long, shorter the stick, the better. And you smack someone on the back of the head or something with it. And that was it, you know, mm. like. But was uh, it ever about extent, expansion of territory? To an extent, uh, I mean, like, warfare? but it was, it wasn't complete warfare. Like, it's not. So we, we never had that here. We, we, we always had battles, but we never had wars. And we never had, we never annexed anybody else's lands, you know, neighbors and stuff like that. Um, it was never the Same. purpose of warfare. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think total war is just totally a, uh, a western thing at least it was introduced to us as a western thing like we weren't going around you know uh murdering each other because we wanted their land you know we were a highly mobile society um itinerant i think is the term mm. i think it's a sedentary <laughs> sedentary civilization thing because you know yeah. like, you know happened in asia too same way in middle east yeah, and well, anyway, so back to the, 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 the weaponizing indigenous knowledge. I, I, it's, we don't, weapons for the indigenous people of America certainly was not about destroying someone else. It was about utility. And mm. there was utility in not murdering 
a crow village. Uh, like we don't have stories like that. It was usually we went over there to harass them. <laughs> okay. yeah. And in the process, maybe take some horses, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was never like about murder, death and destruction. Was, I'm sure it happened. We were not yeah. perfect people, but it, it was never about that kind of uh, behavior. And yeah. so it's just not with you wouldn't have lasted had, very long if you were trying to scale that up well, an industrial level of, of warfare. <laughs> yeah. Well, what would happen was it's a good point is that the Lakota encountered these people who were conducting total war, like they were taking killing entire tribes and mm. taking their children and eating them. And so what they did was they banded together with other different tribes, a couple of them enemy tribes, and went over and wiped them out, specifically because they were so a tribe was conducting total war, you know, like and that that could not stand. They were committed yeah. war crimes essentially or crimes against humanity. Yeah. Um and but you know, it was it happened, I'm sure, but it, it was rare and people reacted and simply because uh, even though it, it people, tribes intermarried, you know, it, it wasn't like the Crow and the Lakota who were enemies didn't communicate with each other, didn't exchange bodily fluids and make babies. <laughs> yeah. was, like, it's hard to fight total war against someone who's basically your cousin, you know. Yeah, um, that you have an embassy with, and part of that embassy is um, is sex. <laughs> yes and, always been. <laughs> well yeah and i think it's it's i know there's many different topics and there's just certain death to the state death state the statement but no one's a pure blood mm. everyone is part of something else and uh like just this idea of perfect genetic purity and i'm going to tease my wife's tribe um i've encountered many of her cousins and my in-laws who say yeah. they are pure crow and in my mind, that means, oh, they're highly inbred. Like they basically, they said their genetic code <laughs> froze in the 1800s. You could only say that about your in-laws. Oh my God. <laughs> See, luckily, well, we got just a very small audience here and no one's ever going to hear that. <laughs> well, you're going to get arrows. Well, it's you, also- You get speared here for suggesting that, but it, I mean, it's true. You know, we've always been marrying out and part of the reason for coming together in big gatherings with lots of tribes is to marry and adopt across um because that's that's part of how uh, part of the mechanism for avoiding uh, alaska warfare and you know sex has always been a really big part of that as well um necessarily yeah no absolutely uh, it's just yeah, to, to avoid that inbreeding you were talking about <laughs> we, um, you know, I mean, the only way we wanted you to have apply it. that, we, we tried to apply <laughs> that in evolutionary computing because, you know, in evolutionary computing, they, they um, it was an experiment we did because uh, they always have this thing that uh, after a number of, you know, because they develop, it's how they develop some pretty good neural nets to solve a lot of different kinds of problems. You know, they breed these algorithms together over time, a, a bunch of generations, but inevitably you get this inbreeding effect whereby the, the algorithms just deteriorate over time you know what i mean they just become stupid um so we what we thought was we could apply our marriage uh our marriage law so the algorithm of our marriage law you know 
which is designed to ensure um, uh, the genetic diversity isn't lost in a small population over time. So we thought we'd apply that to how the, the algorithms were bred. Um, <laughs> so we made that the selection operator for things. I've told you about this one before, so you know how it ran. Um, yeah, but, but it's just occurred to me with all your talk of utility, you know, we kind of thought that part of the problems we encountered with that experiment was about um, removing indigenous knowledge from its context. And this idea that our hypothesis was that it doesn't work outside of its context. You can't just remove one part of it or one pattern and apply it over here and expect it to work. But what you made me think about is that we didn't consider utility. Like in most evolutionary computing, they've got algorithms that have a specific purpose and they're looking to improve them in that purpose. But we didn't, we just took a bunch of random algorithms and mushed them together. So we weren't thinking about what the utility of these could be. So in the end, we ended up with these enormously complex algorithms, which were therefore at the same time clunky and slow because the more complex you get, the less speed and efficiency you get. And we had no idea what they might be used for. Um, but yeah, so I mean, how important is utility then? I don't know, what do you think about that? Do you think if we'd thought about that and we'd, we'd actually used algorithms that for, were for a purpose that it might have worked out better? I honestly don't really know too much about genetic algorithms. Um, uh. I'm aware of the field, but I haven't really. Um, well, if, if we're looking for utility, what, what utility could algorithms even have for us? So what, what, what is their usefulness? So what would you so, be, you know, if you were putting, you know, when you're putting together algorithms or if you're putting together something amazing, whiz bang, um, what would that be for? What's the utility for us in these things? So for me, I've always been deeply interested in cultural uh, preservation and reclamation for using technology and Let's take, for instance, so this, this topic of utility. So it's quite common for tribes to collect audio and document audio. And there's a good way and a bad way. And, and I mean, from it, like what you're doing with your audio. Um, and so I, in my work of working with different tribes and working with their data, like. Uh, it's really hard to and important to convey to different tribes that uh, there's this, there's good data collection models and there's bad data collection models and but more importantly to understand the difference between good data collection and bad data collection is that you need to understand what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, take for example, you have a tribe who wants to. Um, teach people, teach their youth how to speak the language. And they approach it from the perspective of, we need to make sure that they can communicate and also be able to uh, say equivalent words from English in the language, like just making, you know, like a, a Maori or Cheyenne or Lakota. And so what they do is, 
okay, so we want the, the children to speak the language. And so the first step we're going to do is we're going to make sure that they understand how to say common objects in the language. And then they go to, an, this is how you say cup. This is how you say, you know, people. This is how you say, you know, like all these, basically they start building the dictionary mm. and they start collecting the audio. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and they go around. Yeah. Exactly. And so what happens is, they go around, they're collecting audio, and they're taking up the time of their elders and people who can speak the language, and they're kind of making them, forcing the elders to speak a, a artificial language. Basically, what they're trying to do unintentionally is map their language to English. You know, like it's basically English, but with, and it, it just doesn't work. You know, then no. what are you trying to do? Uh, and so the better way to do it is start thinking about how do families communicate? You know, like how do you mm. communicate with someone? And so I got a good friend. His name is uh, Dr. Quinn. Um, I'm calling it Quinn. And he has this methodology called um, Minimum Course. And even, he ever had, even has a TED talk about this. And it's basically, Step one, make sure that you, you're able to express yourself, you know, like what's the word for self, you know, your hands, your feet, how do you say my face, how do you say how do I eat, you know, and the first thing after that you say, okay, how do I say mom, how do I say brother and sister mm -hmm. and father and you know, like focusing not on nouns, but more on relationships. Yeah, which I which I think is entirely indigenous. He's not indigenous from North America, but he's uh, Gaelic, so I would say that Irish. <laughs> so I would say yeah, he's, he's got that. Uh, yeah, after that, they went through all that with their um their Renaissance, the Celtic Renaissance, and they had to yeah. do all the revitalization projects with their language and everything. So they'd know what they were doing. Um, yeah, it, there is a so I would, um, Neohet Grey Morning. He's an Arapaho um, fellow from Turtle Island there a lot of bits and pieces with him he was my thesis examiner back in the day like 13 14 years ago and he he has a method that's really quite similar he reckons that even where it can even work on interspecies so he's currently teaching dolphins um arapaho <laughs> that's his project <laughs> at the moment he says this pedagogy is so good that dolphins could learn my language that's interesting. No, I, I think no, I, I think it's just about the relationships and it's also about the, the structure of the language. And so what's actually and so and that's also very very engineering. Like you gotta know what you're building, right? Before you start collecting and doing and you know, like I, I think but then of course at the same time you can be too rigid about it. You don't wanna be you only do things because they have pure utility isn't a happy life either it's very german <laughs> perspective <laughs> oh, yeah. this when i look at how they they're trying to like um process language you know like when I, I look at all the ais you know um you know that are doing all the semantic sort of <laughs> understandings with language it's like um yeah that, that was straight like i kept looking at that and thinking well i'd go somewhere else with that and even like with all your um just your basic like your chat bots and stuff uh going through and looking at the 
like the little decision trees and stuff <laughs> for that. We wanted to, um, yeah, we've been talking about making a, a, a black series. Um, yeah, because, because we always feel like in our universities that we're the black series. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, if anybody wants to know anything about anything indigenous, they, they ask us and they think we're gonna know about it. Or even like just, you know, hey, we're doing astrophysics or we're doing like aerodynamics well, we're doing particle physics. What's uh, can you come and give us a, um, a, a lecture on particle physics, like from an indigenous perspective? So, we always feel like we're black series. So, we're thinking, man, if we could design that, then we wouldn't have to do the most annoying part of our job. We could just direct them to the chatbot, get that all sorted out. But then we got hung up because we couldn't figure out how the decision trees would work or how we think or how we talk. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really good point. That you find you're just being exploited because you're an exotic entity, right? And so um, that's pretty common, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I could I could learn your language right now online if I wanted to. I think that's one of the ones that's that's up there that anyone can learn. How weird would that be? <laughs> I could be saying all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> Yeah. But I guess this is what we need. Somehow we need these uh, cultural black boxes uh, somehow. Have you been, have you found any mechanisms for that? Um, it sounds like most of the work is actually face-to-face -face, working with community and, and helping community understand, you know, what it takes to protect these cultures, which it sounds like it's not an automated process, but it's, it's actually a process of awareness. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, well, I mean, I don't want to dive into the new uh, nitty gritty, but it's basically just uh, from a, for the AI research, we're, we're trying to collect data, basically, at the most basic, that's what we're trying to do. And we're also trying to do in a way that's also respectful of the culture and contextualized to the culture and, and doing it in a way that the community wants it to be done as well you know that's also important and so what we're so when it comes to data collection the our utility it all is being derived by what the community wants like for example one community wants language education and one community wants to scan archival audio um, and so that's two different use cases and two different priorities, generally related priorities, but just trying to be respectful of what the community wants exactly. And, and so, but doing both to a high rigor of uh, data annotation or labeling, basically we're taking audio files and putting text to it, aligned audio text and in their orthography, um, so each language has their own orthography or the way it's spelled. And so that's sort of the, the general of it. Um, I feel like I, I got sidetracked here. <laughs> yeah. well, do, do, you, do, you, do your, your people have like battles over orthographies there? And we look like half the fights in our community. Oh, yes, of course. Are spelled. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think everything is 
up for debate, quite frankly. <laughs> I think it's it's quite frustrating yeah. because uh, like even my own tribe, we we have a orthography that's based on Lithuanian for whatever random reason. Um, uh, and I don't know why. Like I not I don't think it's particularly efficient and it's very confusing. Um, mm. And it has a lot of silent spelling. Right. Um, like word constructs that don't really go anywhere. And when they use just standard IPA, which is International Phonetic Alphabet, it makes much more sense. So, mm. but people are just really dug in. Like indigenous, my fellow Cheyennes are just like, this is the way. Yeah. They even, they even passed the law that this is the way things are to be done. And so, whatever. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's yeah. quite common. Yeah, and, you know, the tribes you're working with, their orthographies um, is up for debate, too. Like, it's some of them use, uh, each community has their own, even though it's the same language, uh, Kwakwala, mm -hmm. but there's multiple orthographies. And it's all just sort of, the multiple orthographies are because every white guy who researched their language put a spin on it. Yeah, yeah. And so as a result, there's ambiguity on what the hell you're supposed to style things. And it's all synthetic. There's no ambiguity in pronunciation or ambiguity yeah. in what's being said. It's just ambiguity of spelling, which is entirely synthetic. Well, you mentioned polysynthetic languages before what's that, that intrigued me what's that all about so uh, the language we're speaking right now so polysynthesis you can think of it as a gradient um, you know there's highly and low or non-existent and English is pretty close to low or non-existent it's it's and so in polysynthesis uh, you, you can take morphemes, which are the smallest units of sound that convey a thought or a meaning. And so in English, the red car, you have three morphemes, you know, to be red and car and automobile. In polysynthetic languages, what you can do is, there's three morphemes there. In polysynthetic languages, uh, typically what you can do is uh, basically conjugate the form of car to give it, you know, color, ownership, vector. In some of these languages, mm. um, in highly polysynthetic languages, you can basically uh, denote the car by saying, you know, it's basically Tyson's car, which is far away. You know, Australia is very far away from Vancouver, and it's probably pointed south, you know, because Tyson likes to park facing south, you know, mm. <laughs> for whatever reason. And you can do all and, this just with prefixes and suffixes on the word. Eh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and the Waukesha languages are highly polysynthetic and where they can actually, they can become arbitrarily long. The limitation becomes the breath, the human breath. And so you can embed within a word um, the, 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 a entire phrase in English in per word. And the problem that causes is that you can't really have a dictionary. And so modern AI 
basically assumes that there's a dictionary somewhere, a statistical dictionary. And it's possible to do that with these languages, but it's entirely common that words are highly contextualized to a specific event and may never be said in the lifetime of the universe. Like you won't be, mm. it'll be really hard to, mm. if not impossible to create a statistical dictionary. And, yeah. and when you think about that statistical dictionary, what I'm talking about is like when you're chatting on your phone, and you know, it has that autocomplete, you know, like I want to go and it's going to say home. That's, that's that, that's that statistical dictionary. Yeah. It's like, it's like, there's this likelihood of home follows go home, you know, mm. just, uh, and you just, it's really, it's nearly impossible to do that with um, polysynthetic languages. And so yeah. I'm speaking as a scientist, we, we really hate to say, nothing never happens it's probably uh, uh, poss <laughs> possible look, it's, it's a it's context is so important like i don't know people can yeah. calling our cultures oral cultures but they're more contextual cultures in terms of communication i mean it's about stuff that we already understand together most of the time and just some minimal indicators pointing towards shared understandings <laughs> and well, i can actually, remember I can, and if you had a relation i can remember I, I was away from home for a while um then i come back I came back and I'd only been back home two weeks. And yeah, I went around uh, to see dad. Dad asked me a simple question, like, did you shout? And I understood every word of what he said in language. I just, it was, you know, he was asking, did you shout? And it didn't make any sense to me because I had been shouting. And I'm like, I'm trying to think, well, when's the time in the last couple of weeks I've been shouting? I got to be sorry for that or what's going on? You know, I, I couldn't answer the question. And it turns out it was like um, the day before I walked down to the river <laughs> and he was pissed off because I didn't call out for him to ask if he wanted to come down with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but it's yeah. just, you know, it was just, I'd, I'd um, violated a protocol, you know? And yeah. Yeah. So it's it's funny with with language all the time. It's it's context more than anything else. You know, the, the words are just a kind of they're like skipping stones across that context. It's funny. Yeah. Like oh, but also, this might be the worst at that. Like I don't think, like we 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 speak in terms of it's highly. Our languages are highly contextualized. I would say that our languages are highly um, accurate or they're highly precise yeah. languages. Yeah. And English, and this is, so my wife grew up in Germany and spent 20 years there in Germany and she's constantly confusing me with pronouns. And so in German, pronouns mm. are much more structured because she'll come in here and say, you know, like, of course this happens. Right, look, take me to there, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you want exactly? <laughs> and I think just English is just English assumes it's just a very crude language. It, it, it's not. It's very simple. It's a pidgin language, and it's um. It is a pidgin. It it's a trade creole. You know, and it's yeah. funny because the languages of the Caucasus Mountains um, are, are like they're polysynthetic, or you know. They're incredibly yeah. complex and they have all the features that you were describing before. 
it's just um it's like why aren't these caucasians speaking their language and <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> yeah I, I think i think it's just basically english was the worst possible language it just happened to be the language of the british you know what if they were speaking german or you know danish or you know what if the french won and they were able to you know we'd all be speaking french a much more descriptive language mm. so so i would say to the term you know we have highly contextualized languages no i think that we have highly descriptive languages yeah high precise languages mm. because we have all these constructs of polysynthesis and but they direct and, you focus to somewhere else well how how is it possible I don't, i don't know do you think it's possible for an ai to be able to um, to be able to work with that kind of logic yeah i think for, uh, my research we're having success and Oh, it's a, it's it's a different paradigm though like uh, yeah it's complete that's why i meant by greenfield research and that there's very there's no there's no basis because no one cares there's this theory in linguistics that all languages derive from a universal language and according yeah. to this theory that means because we all all languages derive from this universal language or universal grammar you don't need to study many languages you just need to study a arbitrary language and you can derive knowledge about other languages which is incredibly Shh. colonial <laughs> that basically that basically says oh. if i navel gaze gaze enough i will learn the 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 truth of the universe and yeah they should just happened. come out and say it they should just say atlantean <laughs> <laughs> of course they should just uh, say like where all that came from it came from weird stuff that was channeled from madam blavatsky back in the day about atlantis <laughs> that they all got weird and ran off on all these ideas of no. aryan and now now they just say indo-european instead of aryan because aryan uh, you know is bad brand they say you know european instead it's 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 oh man like i can't think of one discipline that isn't grounded it's some weird q and on stuff i tell you i it's very common in the humanities which is unfortunately who's looking at native research it's like anthropology linguistics yeah. Yeah. you know archaeology sociology uh, i i get into this any okay so i'm an engineer computer scientist and there's a racial bias within my field from engineering perspective but if you never encounter the racism of oh we can't use the number 4 because that's too indigenous we can't use the number 16 or we don't yeah. like the number 01104532 because that's too you know you know australian that that you never yeah. encounter that but you do encounter that in anthropology and sociology and where the perspective mm. assumes that you're a white guy from a baseline from England you know and so like you have all this anthropo anthropological research assuming that normal is some white guy from Harvard or some white guy from oxford you know that's the baseline yeah. of normal but if you look at the world you know you have these white people going or westerners who go to college at oxford 
and they live in a brick house where they go to college and they're going to go and marry one uh, someone that looks like them and they're going to live in a brick house and they're going to raise children who are, they themselves are going to go live in a brick house and that's incredibly yeah. weird because the yeah. 99 percent of us humans regardless like you said the caucuses you could be from siberia you could be from mongolia south asia South America and North America and Australia. And we live as communal entities. And most of us, a lot of us still do. Like we live in mm. multi, multi-generational households. Yeah. Um, and then these and guys are these 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 guys are going out from their nuclear families and designing smart yeah. smart objects, like smart appliances yeah. for our homes. And they're, they're, most of the people on the planet don't live in nuclear families. Yeah. They're weirdos. Yeah, exactly. They're they're yeah. the weirdest weirdos studying us. Yeah, Western <laughs> educated industrialized rich democratic. We yeah. I I spent quite a bit of time overseas. Um, I spent the summer in Siberia, and spent time in Denmark and in rural wow. Germany and rural France and the tribe. This concept where you have a either be a maternal or paternal leader of a family and you have a large family group which is basically the Lakota concept of Tios Baye, uh, a large extended family unit mm. and village that's quite normal that's like every that's the default humanity state like yeah. how did how did the Russians survive communism it's because they they banded together in family units and resisted yeah. the man, you know, like it's not like the ordinary peasant mm. was communist. <laughs> yeah. They were just surviving, you know, a dictatorship. And then similarly in Germany, you had these large extended families in the rural countryside resisting colonization from the people from Hanover, which is mm. the high Germans from is like a weird language and so my wife is from the Swedish tribe and they speak a, their own distinct language and they're facing colonization you wouldn't really think of it in that context like they don't think of it in that context but mm. basically they're dealing with uh, a colonial perspective of high German versus the rest of German and yeah and the same in France and so kind of coming to this point of wrap up this idea like anthropologists and sociologists they're all weird because they just if you dig into the research, like I did this a couple of times, like uh, I took a educational class and they kind of had this research paper from Carl Young and I read that paper and he cited another paper and I read that paper and it all boiled down to a couple of papers at, at like Harvard and Yale. Mm. And they were all like 19 year old college rich college kids yeah who are who are on the rowing team and it turns out like it's doing like, speculative fiction it's it's all research being done on these male dudes white male rich kids and yeah. like like how much aspirin are you supposed to take it yeah. comes from research on these you know i think there's like 18 of them uh, i yep. feel looking uh, don't quote me on the research here but that it's like there's like 20 white dudes rich white mm. dudes that 
that's how much they decided how much aspirin is healthy. And yep. It's arbitrary. Like, how come these 18 white dudes, <laughs> how come they say 50 milligrams is the basis of, and it's for everything. Like, it's kind of scary. Like, yeah. Uh, in the States, there's been a lot of controversy in that like 50 milligrams might actually be dangerous for women. And so the, the what's the basis of this for the 50 milligrams? You know, it, it all assumes a young white guy um, from Harvard <laughs> on the Rowan team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's the baseline for everything? And, yeah. And Weirdly, but that, like, that has been, um, that, that has been really quite successfully challenged you know a lot of people are having to go back to the drawing board and and redo all these experiments with with more diverse peoples and they're finding yeah they're getting uh, you know, some very different results well i mean but if you scale that extrapolate you know, everything the the basic social science of studying humans mm. assumes the baseline is some arbitrary you know, a group of white boys, either from Oxford yeah. or Germany mm. or depending yeah, on the research. Yeah, Harvard. Look, don't even and get me started a, on psychology. Oops. No, I mean, like, I think every field, like, it's all kind of makes this assumption. Like, even computational linguistics, it's all based off MIT research. And mm. MIT is the, you know, the preeminent technical college for good reason. But whatever they say, goes and so MIT is the originator of this concept of the perfect the, 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 the peer human language and we had this bias toward well if any language doesn't matter what language you study then let's just study English that means that they've kind of picked a weird language it's a pigeon it's a it, it's, it has no polysynthesis it's really ambiguous, but you know, like pronouns, and it only has like three cases, you know, past, present, and future. And future is even kind of iffy for English. It's not, yeah. it's not a real future. No. It, and so, and so this whole, all of science has this problem of the myopia of like assuming English is the, the, the center of the universe. And then it's kind of, I think, and so coming back to your original question of what are we missing by not researching indigenous knowledge? And it's because of this myopia that we are ignoring um, scientific constructs in languages other than English. <laughs> mm. In languages, like it, a lot of, people when they do ASR, uh, like say, uh, I want to create English, what they do is they simply extend our French. So all the research is in English because America and MIT, whatever, and Carnegie Mellon centers of AI is in America, and they do things in default of English. And so when they teach AI French, they assume it's basically a type of English and they use a translation layer of, you know, the core is English and the, we're gonna add in French on top of it. Now I'm kind of simplifying, but it's basically what happens. So they treat every language like English. And so you end up with the situation where it doesn't handle non-English very well. Like take, for example, Chinese, you know, Mandarin and Cantonese, they're very different animals to English. 
and it's really hard to use English-based methodology on those languages. And so what did they do? They, these companies like Baidu and Samsung, they created their own AI um, simply because it just didn't, the English systems didn't work. And they, those systems that they created, one of them is called DeepSpeech, our friends, the Maori, uh, Tahiku Media, yeah. they, used, they used the system based off Baidu's work um, called DeepSpeech. Mm. And it turns out, that system works on English better than the old way. It was yeah. like this trend. This, so just even taking into account an AI that, that works for Chinese works much better for English um, than the traditional way. For everything, so there I, are AIs of magic. And I know this is true because it only took TikTok about 45 seconds to figure out that I like bottoms. Yeah. So and when you... So imagine if you had AI that understood indigenous languages. Like I, I think it would make all AI much better. It would, it would be transformational to the field of AI simply mm. because we would, we could make a case that this myopia is actually harmful to the field. Yeah, um, and that it's important to take in. It's not diversity for diversity's sake. I, I think it actually is a scientific hindrance. You know, not everyone is a white guy from Oxford. Um, and so I think it, just in general, there's a bias toward Westerners um, yeah, the idea in research. Yeah, the defaulting to English everywhere. But I mean, that's the language of the global economy. Yeah, so it, and it I think it holds be, back. Um, yeah, it needs to be more developed. I mean, you were talking about Germany and France earlier. And I mean, they, you know, like they have economic mechanisms where a family can own own capital collectively. So there can be an extended family within a state that that they all hold collectively and that they all, you know, no single one of them can um, can just sell it or get defaulted on it. You know, and this just there's nothing like that that I know of in America, um, particularly and um, there's certainly nothing like that in Australia. You know, that uh, you know, the law that most of us have to operate under, particularly in the colonies, is, you know, very much, you know, individual, uh, every man for himself, you know, um, it's really limiting. And I guess that's that's limiting with the whole idea in tech of the solitary genius, you know, the, this idea that you have these singular geniuses creating these things. And they're making them for individuals as well. Like, you know, the smart objects, you know, smart devices get paired to a person to become like their manservant, basically. <laughs> you know, but how does that work with the family? How does an appliance, a smart appliance work in, uh, in what about extended family households, for example? It's tricky, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just a mechanism of the, 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 the ills of the greater culture. Uh, I think, like, Americans... Like other, if your skin is pale, you're in steep population decline. And it seems to be a, just a general trend, particularly for Germanic speakers. Well, that's, that's, is that the great replacement? Is that the great <laughs> replacement that you're working on with the, with the AI there? With no, the global, I think globalists. I think. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I theorize that there's just ills within Western society, uh, particularly English speakers, 
and you know other speakers of languages like English for some and they're culturally similar you know like America and how much is my wife hates it Germans are basically a type of Americans <laughs> you know we derive a lot of the cult our culture because a lot of immigrants came from Germany yeah. into America yeah. and so I grew up with a lot of uh, descendants of Germans in Montana, for example, yeah. and and the Dutch, and, there are a lot too. Yeah, like I think Yan yeah. Yan Yankees was like that was about the a combination of the Dutch names Jan and Case. Yeah, so I think I think they're just not having as much children for, and I think it's this individuality of like yeah. what's going on. Like maybe maybe it's I don't know. Maybe they just have too many people, and they're, they're yeah. the cultural mean or the zeitgeist has decided. We're, we're, yeah, we're, I don't the, know. we're the opposite like you right now we're like i think our average age is about 25 indigenous australia it's um yeah lots and lots of kids and then birth rates are declining with everyone else so uh yeah it's just be another i don't know i reckon by the end of the century everyone will be aboriginal in australia again we won't look remotely <laughs> the same as we did but but that's already true as well <laughs> yeah i think it's I mean, like, I, I honestly, I don't think it's racial. I don't think there's anything about skin color. There's plenty of, I think it seems to be just the cultural thing. I, I, I like in America, the, 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 the general population decline. If you're, if you're, you're, you're white, uh, or self-identify according to the census as white. I think it's because there's so much scarcity now that it's becoming really almost impossible to live as an individual or as somebody who just you know has a partner and that's it. Um, you know, it's very difficult to live as an individual now. You you need to be getting together and big groups of people and pooling your resources if you want to um, remotely have a chance of thriving. Yeah, yeah. I I think collectivist cultures or the large family group is a stable structure and hmm. so is this yeah. is this does this come across into your work like uh, in, in how you work with your um, ais you know with indigenous communities around indigenous languages and everything yeah and i think yes it's sort yes i think methodology uh, i i you know how we build our i think on some level there's we're just moving bits around, right? On, on some level, we're just moving data manipulation and nothing particularly fancy about that. But what, what is crucial to us is actually engaging with the community, discussing why it's not working as we expected. And, you know, doing our part to explain as best we can. They're not, a lot of them are non-technical, our partners. But, you know, being able to explain to them what, is happening uh, you know like hey we're not being able to recognize these words um do you know why you know just in discussion and then they're able to give insight of like how why they think it won't work and so and that's how we derive our um our basically how do we test this better how do we do that better and and it's been very collaborative like it's really hard for us to say that we built ai because we're geniuses and we're working with the tri tribes i think what's more important is that it has been a collective effort our success is derived because of our 
our, our, our relationship with the communities that we work with. And, and so every time we talk to them, we say, oh, that's a really good idea. So maybe we, we go back to the drawing board and we write our code differently and we, we try to take in their input from that perspective. And mm. it's, I mean, like, ultimately, like I said, it's just moving bits and transforming matrices and adding numbers together. And, but how we do that, is derived by our relationship with our community and so i think i think that's necessary mm. i think it, like i don't think i think we're being held back by the methodology where the this nietzschean idea of like a researcher goes into his office and sits there in his computer or his chalkboard and writes up you know like john nash style you know the famous yeah. mathematician he's sitting there yeah. drawing you know <laughs> i think that in a way that navel gazing mm. and yes research can be done that way but it's also it, it, it sort of isn't very productive yeah. or as productive as it could be seeking those moments of exceptionalism to build into the brand i think look i i, I don't know all, all the time we've been yarning um you know um, a few years now like i i never once i've never seen you in a eureka moment you know, <laughs> I've never once seen you like, um, like really excited about anything. It just seems to be, you know, uh, just a steady, yep, this is the work we're doing and we get it done. Um, you know, I've never, never seen you excited about anything, but is, is there anything that you're like a little bit excited about? <laughs> I think it's when we talk, it's usually because one of us is having trouble. <laughs> I think we're 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 the opposite of fair weather friends. Uh, that's it. It's usually usually like some one of us is in a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, no, I, I think what I'm really excited about is this idea of like getting communities to do research for themselves. Like we were talking earlier about data sovereignty and how mm. you know, other people might are exploiting indigenous data, like. So what's the solution? And the solution is we teach them to do it, right? Who who else is going to protect um, uh, Aboriginal data and Aboriginal lands? Aboriginal people. Yeah. How do we in, how do we uplift them and enable them to build economies using new tools? Like that that risk and reward of a new tool. Uh, why don't we just teach you how to use it and you decide? what is good about it. And if it has no use, then mm. that, you know, learning something new is always useful, right? And so, yeah. Well, so toward that wait, end, wait for the good stuff to turn up. I yeah, mean, and this might my be- My community, we skipped pages, we skipped uh, flip phones, everything, all the way right up to our first engagement was just smartphones. Like. <laughs> yeah, and what I'm excited about is this summer, uh, we're launching a Lakota AI code camp and we just launched the website. Um, we think everything's spelled correctly. I put the link to your chat. There's mm. lakota.aicode.camp. And this nice. summer, what we're, what we're going to do is teach 20 Lakota youth. We're focusing on high school age and we're going to teach them basic computer science, basic AI and basic app development. The idea being that we would at the end of the course, three weeks, they'll have an app 
that they custom built a Lakota language education app uh, using AI object recognition specifically, and they'll take it to the community and they'll have the tools, the educational tools to replicate it again for their own community. And we're hoping, or I certainly hope, that this is just the beginning of a, a new era in Lakota country and indigenous, like it would serve as a model for how do we build long lasting relationships with AI and communities mm. by giving the communities the power. And I'm really excited about yeah. uh, how the student, so how the students of, are going. Instead of trying to come up with the innovation, you like, um, you, you, you give a, a whole heap of little agents um, some very basic programming and then let them graze on the data of their community and see what they come up with. Absolutely. Sounds very similar to the the best ways of developing AIs. <laughs> you make the simple yeah. AI and then you let it go and let it graze and see what it turns itself into. Um, yeah. And then you just do that with human children. <laughs> hey. I think we're... Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited about I'm excited it. about I, that. Yeah, because it, it allows for emergence, you know, to come out as cultures do, as anything cultural does in anything new. Yep, and I'm hoping to scale it. I want to do it in different communities. I want to do it one day. I'll do it in your country. I hope. <laughs> wow. So what great. we're going to do is what we're going to do is open source the curricula. We're developing curricula right now. There's six of us. Oh. We got a uh, educational PhD expert named Ian genius we got a couple of data scientists mason and sean uh, one of them both of them are mit graduates so they know they're smart <laughs> and and you got me and my wife we're, we're and, uh, andrea um working to organize all this and i'm mm. sort of the engineer and the idea would be that we're going to create open source curricula that other teachers can take and use uh, and also in the future, we want to teach the teachers. Mm. So use, use the camp as a training ground uh, and develop curriculums with other educators. And so then we can help them bring it to their community. This is the first one. This is sort of the prototype. Damn, that's uh, exciting. And uh, we should get you it, later this year. What are you doing in July? Yeah. <laughs> the code camp. <laughs> I, can't, ah. I can't go. <laughs> That's All when right. we're doing it. In July, uh, I'll be busy. July is when we're going to do it. All right. Well, I'll uh, be talking to you in July. See how it goes. Um, yeah. That, that just sounds really exciting. All right. You yeah. got something exciting. You're excited about something. That's yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that that's a positive note to end on. An exciting note. Yeah. yeah. Anything you want to say? You wanted to add to tie tie everything together towards the end there. No, I think. I just think that bright that bright spot of excitement is is, is pretty good. No, I, I think I just want to leave you with this one thought: is that my hope with doing this work with the students, these young youth, is that in five years we'll have our first undergraduates. They'll have their computer science degree, mm. and you know, optimistically, we'll have 20 because 20 will be going to the class. Mm. And in six years, we'll have another 20. In seven years, we'll have another 20. In eight years, we'll have our first master's students. 
and then in eight years we'll have our potentially our first PhD students. In nine years, in nine to ten years, we'll have our first doctors. And so basically, if we invest now in our in our communities and teach them basic AI, basic computer science, that will have transformed the world and made it mundane. Your math is five. <laughs> Your math is wrong because you haven't factored in the other people that they'll be teaching. Yes, exactly. In communities. So the, I think exactly. you got to work the exponential function in there somehow and add a couple of zeros, I reckon. Well, even if we just have 20, that's significant for us, yeah. for us indigenous people. We just that's have an huge. extra 20. But, you know, once we get, well, you're right, in five years, it won't be just every 20, every five, every year. It's it's going to be hundreds because, mm. you know, really cousins... Is and little sisters and little cousins and, you know, our nephews are going to see their uncles and aunts go into the field. And it's going to be just sort of, it'll be to the point where, of course, indigenous people are make great computer scientists. Of course, Maori are great AI researchers. It's, of course, Lakota and Cheyenne and Crow are, it'd be mundane. And that's my goal. So it's not, so I'm not a special person this one-off random guy who can program, I want it to be normal. You know, I don't want to be the odd duck out. I want to be the totally average Mr. Brennan Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the vision with this whole Lakota. I think it's just the beginning, but within five years, we'll see huge dividends. And within 10 years, I think we'll have transformed our communities um, by participating in this economy. I don't think you're going to have the option to be average. You, you wouldn't have that name running wolf if you was just going to be flying under the radar. You'd be like a sitting turtle or something. But no, you're, uh, <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon you're doing great things. It's pretty damn exciting. You know, like we were talking about, well, we started to drift off here, but we're talking about <laughs> individualism. You know, like I, oh, did, yeah. was I was raised in the tribe. And if you Google my name, there's like 25 of us yep. in Montana. 25 yeah, Michael, 25 Michael Renewolves. There's even a Dr. Michael Renewolf teaching math yeah. somewhere in the Southwest of the United States. And mm. it actually makes me feel comfortable. Like yeah. I'm not the only one. I might fail. There's more Michaels out there who might succeed. That's it. And, and like, I'm a member of a nation. Mm. And I'm just a, a, a I guess, in a, if you want to get all spatial and cosmic about it, I'm just a projection of a yep. living entity. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's comforting a really good in a way. way. To look at it. And it's kind of comforting because my failures are my own and my successes are my tribes. Mm. Yeah, well, Tyson Yonkerporter is my settler name. <laughs> colonial law. My my real name's Kawapa, and which is also my son's name, also my father's name, my grandfather. And yeah, Kawapa is just a line, like just a, a segment of that line, and I like it. Yeah. <laughs> You, you don't have time for narcissism, but you also don't have time for uh, false humility or feeling, uh, you know, 
and all that imposter syndrome, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good way to be, I reckon. Not too concerned with your branding. Loving it. Yeah, I also get a bunch of uh, debt collectors calling me all the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, get, yeah. I get like every, every yeah. six months, I get a phone yeah. call from you know, one, of us, one of us, Michaels, doesn't pay his bills. And yeah. so <laughs> well, you, you see how, you, how good your credit rating is when your name's Uncle Porter. It's the uh, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I constantly get, yeah, I, I, since I had a cell phone, I've gotten creditors calling me like, yeah. you're behind on your payments. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't own a home. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I don't have debt with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pluses and minuses. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Mm, I get them all the time. Yeah. Anyway, um, also, I, I keep getting like, like I've got Google alerts about my name just to sort of see when things come up. And um, most of them are court appearances. So anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Really good talking to you, bros. Thanks for doing this. Yep. I'll catch you again soon. Love your yep. work.